Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project... Five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered look at the Wars Against the French, which originally aired as a three-part special from the 25th of July to the 5th of August, 2012. Welcome to the podcast. So ever since I started doing history podcasting, Napoleon Bonaparte was a figure who always profoundly fascinated me, and I know that obviously I'm not alone in that. Coming as he did at the turn of the century, and representing in many ways the crossroads between the old world and bringing it into the next, the wars which Napoleon took part in and eventually embodied were the centrepiece of a long struggle for supremacy in Europe and the wider world. Never before had ideology, technology and warfare been so condensed and focused into such a brutal and constant war. It required vast reserves of money and materials, and it consumed countless lives, all in the name of ideas and ambitions that Napoleon Bonaparte so eloquently captured and apparently achieved. At the high point in his life, Napoleon could claim the mantle of the most successful ruler that France had ever seen. While his exploits and successes forced all enemies to the peace table, even Britain, as Paris insulated itself behind petrified rivals, defeated after years of bitter war and French borders were pushed further than ever imagined possible. 
For all his success in the war, and for his idealism in fulfilling the promises of the revolution, Napoleon overstepped the mark in so many ways. He pushed the borders of France too far and he defeated his enemies too completely, which ensured that he became feared and loathed by his rivals rather than begrudgingly accepted. Perhaps only Louis XIV had drawn the ire of so many rivals before, but unlike Louis, Napoleon did not exercise the restraint which would enable France to hold on to its gains during Louis XIV's reign, with the result that by the end of the wars that France had taken part in, in 1815, the French state was actually smaller than it had been in 1799. This was the price, the Allies said, for holding Europe to ransom and torpedoing the old order of things. The old order had certainly been torpedoed, equipped with his code Napoleon and armed with powerful ideas of liberalism, equality and nationalism, Napoleon's agents swarmed Europe in their quest to unite the continent behind the revolution's ideas. Ideas like those weren't so easily snuffed out with the French defeat, total as it had been. Within a generation in 1848, further revolution would upset the European order yet again. By that point there was no going back. By then, a new Napoleon was positioned to seize the French throne, and a new era of French history spluttered into being. Because of the lure of the Napoleonic story and its centrality to my podcast story, I knew I had to do it justice, but I was merely a podcasting noob and hadn't yet got a handle on how to pace myself with the larger wars, with the result that, when I tried to do this five years ago, such learning curves pretty much defeated me. After having convinced myself that I had to do a three-parter with a talk episode in between, I covered the revolution in one hour-long episode, and then crammed everything that I could fit into the second episode about Napoleon in two hours. Two hours! And for the rest of my time as a podcaster, that example stuck out to me as an example of how not to do a special series. When the idea of remastering episodes 1-19 to came to me, The major reason it did appeal to me was the fact that I'd get the opportunity to redo Napoleon and do the subject justice after so many years of podcasting under my belt. Having learned the lessons which come from throwing oneself headfirst into something like podcasting and seeing what does work and what doesn't, I hope that you'll find this remastered take on Napoleon to be a better paced and more digestible take on the era than I originally did. If you guys are ready then, I'd like to give this another go, but first... I would like to add that this podcast is on Patreon, and if you want to be a patron of When Diplomacy Fails and get access to wonderful goodies and wonderful merchandise and loads of other wonderful stuff, then go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or go to wdfpodcast.com, give us a visit on our official website, and click on the Patreon banner while you're there. For $5 a month, you guys could get extra special good stuff. That means extra episodes that you wouldn't get normally and that you can only get by being a patron of this podcast. Failing that, if you want some pretty awesome merch to represent this podcast in your daily life, then being a patron is a great way to get hold of such merchandise. That again, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or click on the banner wdfpodcast.com. Thanks again, guys. And thanks for joining me for this super special take on Napoleon. I'm very excited to do it. And I hope you guys enjoy it. I will now take you to the year 1789. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. 
Napoleon Bonaparte. By May 1789, Louis XVI was in a crisis. Upon coming to power in 1776, he had inherited a state worse than bankrupt following years of mismanagement and ill-advised involvement in American wars. However, instead of implementing the desperately needed reforms which would have spread taxation over the upper classes, and rather than decrease his own lavish spending or apply to any of the available financial institutions for a badly needed loan, Louis chose the easier option of heaping more taxes on the middle and common classes while ignoring the advice of one of his chief economic advisers, Jacques Necker, to take the necessary steps to save the French economy. When Jacques protested that he was making everything worse, Louis XVI sacked him and hired the court's resident yes-man, Charles Alexandre de Cologne, as his finance minister. When Cologne couldn't get the approval of the Assembly of Notables for his massive new tax plan, Louis must have known he was in trouble. He did something on the 5th of May 1789 then which hadn't been done in over a hundred years in France. After firing Cologne from his post and bringing back Necker, Necker recommended that Louis call for the Estates General. Louis agreed to use this fantastically awkward institution, and in the process he sealed his own fate. The Estates General was a body made up of three so-called estates, or bodies of the state. The first was the clergy, the second the nobility, and the third was made up by the common people. But it was in many ways a pointless creation, since the clergy and nobles regularly sided with each other against the common people, which of course meant that it rarely achieved or changed anything. It shows how desperate Louis was then that he was willing to listen to this practically obsolete gathering of peoples. Perhaps he believed it might soothe some of the grievances of the agitating middle classes if he listened to their representatives. But the same thing happened that always happened. The clergy and nobles ganged up on the common people's representatives, and no progress was made. Ah oh well, Louis may have said, I tried, now back to my palace. But this time it was different, because the third estate of the Estates General was no longer content to be ignored. Emmanuel Joseph C.A. wrote a pamphlet that same year in 1789 entitled What is the Third Estate? and in it described the essential nature of the commoner to the state. In answering his own question, C.A. argued that the Third Estate was the nation, and this idea was agreeable to the masses who believed that, although a minority of the rich were in power, the state still belonged to these masses. Thus the defeat at the hands of the aristocracy in the Estates General, just as had happened in years past, was a bitter one for the numerically superior lower classes, and it only confirmed what C.A. had previously said, i.e. that the masses were far more important and deserved far more respect than the upper classes traditionally exercised. But it was another idea of C.A., that of urging those affected to act, and drastically act if necessary, which really had the most impact. Since it was clear that those at the top could not and would not help them, the Third Estate made the decision to break away from the Estates General, and on the 17th of June, 1789, it created its own institution, the National Assembly. It is easy to see the parallels between the American Revolution and the French Revolution around this time. Initially, the Third Estate was not looking to revolt, kill the king, or invade all of Europe. All they wanted was a little freedom and a bigger voice. Just like in the American Revolution, it was the reaction of the opposite side to their demands which really set their cause on fire. The other two estates, the clergy and nobility, 
were horrified at the idea of giving more power to the lower classes and upon learning of the establishment of the National Assembly, began to denounce and declare seditious their moves. This was despite the National Assembly gaining a significant following and polarising the other estates, since some of the clergy and nobles who believed in their cause actually joined them, thus strengthening their resolve in the face of such bitter opposition. The majority of the clergy and nobles fell back on their old habits though, trusting in the archaic nature of absolutism and Louis' determination to maintain the status quo as an effective barrier against any possible liberties that the Third Estate might be agitating for. They were largely right in this assertion. The Third Estate's members were, by and large, kicked out of the Estates General, and many ended up on an outside tennis court. It was from this that, on the 20th of June 1789, all the delegates from the former Third Estate agreed to what was called the Tennis Court Oath. This tied all members of the Third Estate to their cause, and all of them committed themselves to never separate until they had achieved their aims in France. These aims included the creation of a new national constitution. Louis displayed more of his trademark ignorance when he learned of the National Assembly's creation. He attempted to bribe and intimidate the group into dissolving, but it would not succeed. The National Assembly had grown too strong for even the King of France to stop them. He was even forced to recognise their existence, giving partisans throughout France encouragement that with a little bit more pushing, perhaps their desired reforms would finally take place. The radicals soon spread their gospel throughout Paris and the countryside. Revolutionary fervour seemed to be at a boiling point, and when the potential revolutionaries learned that their beloved economist and idealist Jacques Necker had been dismissed again, the urge to act became irresistible. A scramble for arms broke out, and revolutionaries famously stormed the Bastille on the 14th of July 1789, and grabbed all the arms that they could find, as well as powder and some cannons, from the medieval fortress in central Paris. Now armed and of large numbers, the revolutionaries capitalised on the unpreparedness of their adversaries and began to coerce others to join with them. As more arms were secured, prisons were raided for weapons and Louis pondered at what to do. At this time, the Marquis de Lafayette, a sympathetic nobleman, was creating a new institution to guard the aims of the National Assembly and this was called the French National Guard. Soldiers had come in from around the country to Paris some of them mercenaries, and this fueled a fear that the revolutionaries held, which was that Louis would attempt to force them to stand down. While the revolutionaries, reformists and idealists made waves in Paris, it was out in the countryside where the average peasant was causing havoc. Many had had their passions ignited with the moves made in Paris, and some began to attack and burn down the estates which they had been tied to by contract for all of their lives. In what became known as the Great Fear, one drastic action led to the belief that the only way forward was another drastic action, and revolutionary fever in the streets of Paris and other cities throughout France accelerated the process. The question as to why Paris was so eager and willing to heed the call to revolt against their masters is a complex one, and I don't want to dwell on it too much here, but I will say this. As an absolute monarch, Louis was expected to steer the country out of its financial crisis and when he couldn't do that, himself and his wife quickly became the symbol of a monarchy, so out of touch with the starving people of France and a major focus for their anger. Louis hadn't done much to endear himself to his people. He wasn't the eternal father figure Louis XIV had been, well, at least he had been in the minds of the French people, and he wasn't the principled monarch which his grandfather Louis XV had been either. 
He was a womanizing, arrogant, and pompous king. Worse to many in France, he was seen increasingly as a tyrant. The ideas of the Enlightenment, of equality, and of brotherhood could no longer be covered up by Louis XVI of France. The French had seen and very much helped America break free of its monarch and establish universal suffrage for all, with notable caveats of course, but with the weighted promises of free speech and freedom of religion, it seemed too appealing a regime to pass up. To some it was the end goal, the natural order of states. I tend to try and avoid broad sweeping statements for obvious reasons, but it is safe to say that by 1789 the majority of the French people were sick of the old ways, the Anshan regime. The fact that a body now existed which could represent them, the National Assembly, gave many a French commoner hope that times would finally change. The atmosphere of rebellion was so rife among the French populace though, that many were willing to fight for that right if necessary, and the size of their cause translated into large militias which overwhelmed anything Louis could realistically produce on short notice. This meant, of course, that Louis was more willing to pacify and appease them for now, at least until he had enough soldiers on hand to put the revolutionaries down. But it was already too late for Louis to retain his authority. Following years of warning signs which Louis and his officials ignored, when the murmurs of revolt came, the situation deteriorated incredibly rapidly in France. By the end of 1789, civil authority had all but vanished, and virtually any noble was seen as the enemy. The clergy were targeted too, in a bloodlust which seemed only satisfied by the appearance of Louis himself in Paris. It was a very different Paris to the one he used to know. Its monarchical authority had been replaced by that of the National Assembly. All positions of power in the city were occupied by the major players of the National Assembly, and Louis was largely at the mercy of the rebels. However, as historian Simon Scama notes in his book, Citizen, a chronicle of the French Revolution, they were not yet at the stage where killing their monarch was their battle cry. As he noted, The king visited Paris to cries of Long live the nation and long live the king. He accepted the new tricolour flag and appealed to the revolutionaries for calm. Initially, while the idea of tyrannicide did not appeal to them, it was clear that the spirit of revolution was now central to the French people. They wanted real concrete change, not slight concessions, and the breaking point would be Louis' failure to go far enough. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Indeed, the idea of popular sovereignty spread throughout the countryside so fast that neither Louis nor anyone else could contain it. A fear common among the French people was that foreign powers, egged on by the well-connected nobles who had fled the country, would invade and put them all down. Spurred on by this fear, militias were formed throughout France, and in scenes not dissimilar to that of the American Revolution, arms and gunpowder were secured from the major armories throughout the country. With their security thus intact, the revolutionaries now turned to achieving their goals of creating a constitution, and on the 26th of August 1789, they created what is perhaps the most famous document that France has ever created, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. This document was actually more like a list of statements than a legal constitutional document, though. It was controlled by the people who threw out any ideas about an upper house, since the new French government would contain only one house for everyone, which did everything. Additionally, the monarch would only have a suspensive veto, signalling the end of absolutism in France, and the beginning of a constitutional monarchy similar to that of Britain. And then things escalated further, as the national outrage surrounding Louis' slow response, while the state was unravelling and the people were starving, set alight the need for change, and now. In October, the threat from an unruly mob meant that the king had to seek refuge from the French National Guards, the military arm of the revolution, and this finally forced Louis to give legitimacy to the National Assembly. He moved the monarchy to Paris as a sign of good faith, but really because he was forced to, and it seemed as though everything would work out without much more violence. In many ways, the revolutionaries were flying by the seat of their pants, as some could not decide whether a republic or a constitutional monarchy was what they really wanted. It was for this reason that Louis was not immediately done away with, though his power was pretty much non-existent by the time 1789 drew to a close. Louis was to be the mostly powerless figurehead, a status the revolutionaries hoped would satisfy everyone. And as the one-year anniversary of what came to be called Bastille Day on the 14th of July, 1790 was celebrated, revolutionaries began to really set to work creating the nation that they believed France ought to be. During this time, Louis was a reluctant partner who went along with it only because he had no means with which to stop the revolution. However, a plan began to develop in Louis's head, that of foreign intervention. Encouraged by his closest advisers, Louis began to wonder if he could utilise the military aid of his brother-in-law in the Holy Roman Empire, a certain emperor, Leopold II. Louis believed he had to try, and the result was that on the night of the 20th of June, 1791, Louis fled the country in an effort to gain outside help for his reinstatement as absolute monarch. Now I should probably mention that the exact reason why he fled is not actually known and is a source of much debate today, so I say that he left to get military aid, and indeed this is the story that's been passed down to us, but in reality it's just an educated guess, I mean he could have just been going on a sightseeing tour. In any case though it didn't matter what was his true goal, since he was intercepted trying to escape and the French people believed they had caught their king red-handed, trying to orchestrate an invasion by foreign powers, in order to re-establish his absolute reign. So long as that idea of treachery was fresh in their minds, 
it became that much easier for those in favour of a republic to point to how quickly the king had abandoned them and their noble cause. Because of such charges, it was easy to argue that he couldn't be trusted in the future, and if he couldn't be trusted, he couldn't be kept around. This was an idea not wholly agreed upon though, and violence soon broke out in Paris in response to the heavy-handed oppression of the National Guard. As riots intensified, news broke of the first major international interest in the revolution, as the crowds were informed that on the 27th of August 1791, the Treaty of Pilnitz had been signed between the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold II and the Prussian King Frederick William II. The treaty demanded the fair treatment of the French monarchy, or consequences, that of military aggression against the citizens of Paris, would occur. The French citizens had been so concerned with fighting each other that Louis had almost been forgotten. So intense were the passions of the revolutionaries, though, that the Treaty of Pilnitz did nothing to quell their spirits, and instead of heeding the very real threat of invasion and propping Louis back up on his throne like good citizens, the radicals capitalised on the anger directed at the foreign powers by encouraging the revolutionaries to band together and face the common enemies, Austria and Prussia. With the signing of the Treaty of Pilnitz, Austria and Prussia, though they could not have known it, had just set in motion a series of chain reactions that would result in the most widespread war ever seen in history at that time. The apparently arrogant demands of the Austrian and Prussian states galvanised the determination of the revolutionaries, and less than a year later, under the influence of antagonistic politicians and fearful of a European-wide invasion of France, on the 20th of April 1792, war was declared on Austria. Louis was also in favour of the war because ironically he believed it would save his reign and increase his popularity, but we now know how wrong he was. As the revolutionaries attempted to scrape together the men they would need to attack their enemies, Prussia gave its declaration of war to France on the 16th of July 1792, and the two allies began to plan a joint strategy to take down this revolutionary rabble state. At this stage there was little sense that war would become the all-encompassing pastime of Europe, To the foreign powers war was needed to check the growth of the revolutionary ideas that those in France were so eager to spread. If such revolutionary ideas did spread to Vienna or Berlin, it would surely be disastrous for their rule and autocratic regimes. In the name of the old order did the Austro-Prussian alliance organise an invasion of France. In the name of the brave new world did the weary French people prepare to resist them. To the end, if necessary. Beset as the French state was by enemies and the threat of invasion, not to mention turmoil at home, offensive goals were within the imagination of the French revolutionary armies. Their first plan was to invade the Austrian Netherlands, because this would pressure Vienna, and the revolutionaries believed that several like-minded brethren were prepared to join the French cause there, beliefs which suggested an easy victory. However, the French army was in such a desperate state that it simply wasn't capable of launching any offensives, and there was the additional problem of mass desertions, which plagued the French army in the early stages of the war. There were so many uh, different ideas floating around as to what government the people wanted, and this also affected the army, because the individual soldier was not immune to thinking politically either. Many soldiers mutinied because they didn't want a war, because they didn't want to serve the revolutionary government, or because they hated or disrespected their commanding officers. The result was that the French army folded in the face of a strong Austro-Prussian attack, and the French countryside was left practically undefended, 
while the German soldiers chased down the fleeing and disorganised French troops. Just when it looked like catastrophe would befall the revolution, the Austro-Prussian representatives made a critical error. The reason why it had been so easy for them before was because the French were disunited in their goals. Had they been kept that way, they would have remained a pushover. But when the two powers issued the Brunswick Manifesto on the 25th of July that year, it changed everything. The document was a declaration of the intentions of the two states to restore Louis XVI to his pre-1789 status, and it threatened harsh action against the French populace if they tried to stop it. The Brunswick Manifesto united the French behind a common action then, defence of the principles of the revolution, and thus that manifesto came in the nick of time. Considering how badly received the Treaty of Pilnitz had been when the Austro-Prussians had tried to dictate to the French, the fact that they essentially repeated the same tactic was remarkably short-sighted. The French people were outraged at the arrogant nature of the Austro-Prussian demands and were doubly incensed that their goal was to re-establish Louis to his pre-revolution level of power. That was something nobody wanted, regardless of their disagreements about what to do with him now. Once again, an order from foreign powers galvanised the French population and probably saved their revolution too. The Austro-Prussian advance was stopped at the Battle of Valmy on the 20th of September 1792, which, though it was really a draw between the two sides, it gave the French such a boost in morale and it demonstrated to the Prussian forces that war against France would not be as easy as perhaps the Austrians had told them it would be. Before winter had set in then, they withdrew their forces out of France to save their army. While this was happening, a group of Frenchmen were gathering and disputing the need for a monarchy at all, and once they had received word of the apparent victory at Valmy, a near-unanimous decision arose to declare a republic, the first French Republic, on the 22nd of September, 1792. The declaration of the republic was a reaction to drastic political events which had unfolded in France, all accelerated by the Brunswick Manifesto issued by Austria and Prussia in July of 1792. The document didn't just unite the population against foreign invaders, it also created a panic within Paris that centred on Louis XVI. It was feared that Louis would use his feared and hated elite Swiss guards to attempt to seize power while the city was attempting to fight off an Austro-Prussian advance. This fear was largely unfounded since Louis's force, no matter how elite they were, were so numerically inferior to the now armed citizens that the idea of seizing power could never have been put into practice. For the French citizens, fearful of foreign invasion though, the Swiss guards were yet another foreign enemy protecting a king who would stab them in the back if he got the chance. The heightening of tensions during this time were also exacerbated by Louis's use of his own veto. Louis consistently used this to delay anything that the Legislative Assembly proposed, and this angered those in favour of change even further. Soon, Louis's palace in Paris came to be seen as the symbol of a hated tyrant who still clung to any facet of power he could get his hands on. The revolutionaries were beginning to regret keeping Louis on as their constitutional monarch, and this feeling was shared by many of the French citizens who saw little in the way of change occurring in their daily lives. Because of the turmoil that had lasted nearly three years, the economy, infrastructure and law and order of the French government were severely ineffective and strained. While you or I could see the reason for this as the results of extreme political turmoil which followed a country in a crisis, many French people found it easier to simply blame Louis XVI. 
This was especially true in Paris, where Louis and his by now hated wife, Marie Antoinette, resided. Jacques-Pierre Brousseau, leading figure of the revolution in Paris, perhaps encapsulated the collective anger directed at the palace best when he said, I tell you to strike at the palace. You are told to prosecute all factions and intriguing conspirators. They will all disappear if you once knock loud enough at the door of the cabinet, for that cabinet is the point to which all threads tend, where every scheme is plotted and whence every impulse proceeds. The nation is the plaything of this cabinet. This is the secret of our position. This is the source of the evil, and hence the remedy must be applied. The French citizens heeded the call to act, and on the 10th of August 1792, while its soldiers were retreating under a renewed Austro-Prussian offensive, the French citizens stormed the palace in Paris, massacring Louis' Swiss guards to the last man, and demanding that Louis abdicate immediately. At this, the French royal family became prisoners of the revolutionaries. What followed was an escalation of the violence, as prisons were stormed and the political prisoners there killed, while riots and mass mob violence took over the streets. Chief among the instigators of the violence was the Paris Commune, a revolutionary group which had seized power on Bastille Day, 1789, but refused to answer to the National Assembly as the years went on. The violence was thus complicated by the divisions within the revolutionaries themselves, and the numerous committees and groupings that their ideas spawned. It makes following the revolution's events today very difficult and arguably a bit tedious as well. Jacobins were the by now radical group containing the most outspoken and influential of individuals, while their rivals, the Girondists, advocated a republic but were considerably less radical. They tended to contain former monarchists and royal sympathisers who were repulsed by the extreme nature of the Jacobins. These two factions were at loggerheads while the awful violence following the storming of the palace in Paris occurred. Once the Republic had been declared and the National Convention replaced the National Assembly, it was clear that Louis XVI was on borrowed time. One of the first acts of the Jacobins within the National Convention was to put forward to its members the execution of Louis XVI. This was opposed by the moderates, but in vain, as during his trial Louis was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. The infamous act of the new French Republic, that of executing their Bourbon monarch by the guillotine, had finally come to pass, and Louis was executed on the 23rd of January, 1793. This was the ultimate, most extreme and outrageous act committed by the revolutionaries since the whole ordeal had erupted four years before. Then the moderate elements of the National Convention were removed when the Jacobins teamed up with another radical group, the Sans-Culottes, and expelled the more even-handed revolutionaries, most of them Girondists, from the National Convention. Once the Girondists had been removed, the really, really extreme extremists within the Jacobins formed their own group, led by Maximilien Robespierre, called the Montegarde, or the Mountain, due to their choice of high seats in the National Convention, and these men would hijack the revolution, instigating the reign of terror which would see so many people end their lives, under the so-called National Razor of the guillotine. This group, the Mountain, combined itself with the Sans-Culottes with terrible results. The powerful, extremist faction was composed primarily of former farmers, peasants and other lower-class workers, and by channeling the varied frustrations and passions of these groups, the so-called Great Terror came about. The positive result was that 
political turmoil ended for a time due to the sheer fear which the extremists had instilled in their countrymen, and the old chaos was replaced with a government body dubiously named the Committee for Public Safety. This infamous institution held power over the National Convention, and it was filled with the most radical elements of the revolution. Robespierre was its de facto leader, and he played upon fears of counter-revolution and military coups to acquire more and more power for himself and his extremist mates. The Blood Party couldn't last, though. To fast-forward things, Robespierre was eventually offed by those who feared they would be next in Robbie's never-ending series of purges and counter-purges. He was beheaded himself in July 1794, leading to numerous overthrows of the previous extreme institutions, which Robespierre had so eagerly supported. This was the so-called Thermidorian reaction, and it ended the most radical era of the French Revolution. Soon Jacobin clubs were closed, and freedom of speech and worship was finally implemented. It had taken five years and a lot of fast-forwarding for us, but as autumn 1794 dawned, it seemed like the revolutionaries had finally got the revolution right. In the next episode, we'll examine what the rest of Europe thought of the French transition into varying degrees of political and economic chaos, and more critically, what they planned to do about it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.